Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today's title is Stop Delaying Marriage. As you know, last week we encouraged couples to have more babies in response to God's creation mandate. This week, we're going to turn the corner. We're going to chat about encouraging young people to pursue marriage in response to God's word and as a means of shaping society under God. So Aaron, why this topic? Well, I want everybody to know this is the prequel. This is not the sequel <laughs> to the well previous podcast that we did. So obviously you need to get married before you start having more babies. But I was just thinking this week a little bit about some comments I've heard from some young people and just some observations I've made. And I thought, you know what, I I need to have a, a conversation with our listeners about marriage and the need to stop delaying it. So Chris, if you look around at the world within which we live, we see a dramatic increase in the number of people that are living single lives longer. So for example, in the 1950s in Canada, the average age at which a woman would get married for the first time was 20 years old. And the average age for a man was 23 years old. That's in the 1950s. You fast forward to the 2020s, that number has increased to 28 years of age for for women and right around 30 years of age for men, just a couple months shy of 30 for men. So we see there a dramatic increase in seven to eight years from the 1950s to the 2020s, both in Canada and the US actually, the statistics are pretty similar for when people are getting married for the first time. Now, we know that most of them are fornicating before that, so they're playing house, they're living together, but we see this dramatic delay in marriage. Now, in conjunction with that, fewer people are getting married. So for example, marriage rates dropped from about 900 per 100,000 in the 1970s to about 220 per 100,000 today. So think about that. Out of 100,000 people in a given year, you expect there to be about 900 people married. Now there's 220-ish. A little bit higher in the US, a little bit lower in Canada. Now, divorce rates, they say, have fallen just slightly in the last 20 years or so. That's Some people might think that's a good thing, but the explanation for that, as far as I understand it, is because there's fewer people getting married. Hmm. So therefore, there's fewer people getting divorced. So they're like, ah, the divorce rates are falling. Yeah, but it's because there's fewer people that are married. But if we read scripture, we see that marriage is the foundational unit to human civilization. It's even more foundational than the family. So last week we talked about having more babies. Well, in order to have more babies, there has to be a man and woman come together in a covenant called marriage. Marriage then is the foundational, creational institution which forms the family, which we typically conceive of as a husband, a wife, and at least one child. I've also been thinking about the fact that a lot of the gays are clamoring to get married, whereas heterosexuals are clamish about getting married. Think about that. 
more and more the the gays are like, we want to get married. We want the right to get married. Where are the heteros, heterosexual people in that conversation? Ah, whatever. We're content to be single. We're content to live common law. We're content to hop, skip, and jump from bed to bed on Friday nights. This is the world within which we live. So rather than bringing stability and blessing, it's bringing instability and chaos, especially to young children, some of whom are being raised by single moms or in a minority of cases, single dads. And kids are being robbed of the blessing of being raised by intact parents, intact family units, a man, a woman, in one household. But it's also causing chaos in our society as people get more and more confused about who they are, their identity. This conversation about marriage brings stability in contrast to the chaos and the ignorance that we see in our world. And then my other reason, Chris, would be that I've just been talking to more and more young people which are in the prime marriable ages of their lives and they're frustrated. Some of them are fearful of marriage. Some of them have delayed and delayed and delayed and now are having trouble finding a spouse. Some of them are looking around and saying, I don't even know what to do. Like, what am I allowed to say? How am I supposed to interact with members of the opposite sex? So I thought it might be helpful for an old guy like me. And I know you have a lot of experience as well. You've been married for what, 10 years now? Yeah. So 11. Well, my 11. wife better not listen to this podcast. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's okay. But um, yeah, I just, I want to have some practical conversations with, with our listeners to parents I want to give some advice to parents as to how you can encourage your kids to get married younger. I want to encourage Christian young people to stop delaying marriage, to get married young if possible. That's what we want to talk about in today's uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned it. It's it's a the foundational unit of creation, a creational unit. And obviously our culture dismisses marriage so much, so they're dismissing such an important part of creation. So we need to, to flesh out that emphasis on marriage a little bit more. So can you do that for us? Yeah, I wanted to read uh, from Genesis chapter two. I, I, I brought this scripture text along in my notes and I just want to read this because this this says so much. So just go back in time. God has created the world in six days. We read about that in Genesis chapter one and then in Genesis chapter two, we sort of have this zoom in to the sixth day, and we learn more about how that all happened with regard to man and woman. So what was God doing on the sixth day when he created man and woman, Adam and Eve? And the text says there in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. That is a significant statement in Genesis because up till this point, all we've heard repeated is it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. This is pre-fall, this is pre-sin. So when God says it's not good, he's not speaking about some sort of a wickedness, but a deficit, an incompleteness. Mm -hmm. So we have Adam and God declares his aloneness to not be good. So he says, I will make a helper fit for him. So it goes on to say, now out of the ground, the Lord God had made every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, 
that was its name. So there's Adam exercising dominion as he begins to name these uh, creatures, presumably in broad groups. It would have taken a long time to name you know, every species of ant and whatnot. But uh, he, he's naming them as a, as a sign of his dominion. And man gave names to all the livestock, uh, birds, the heavens, every beast in the field. And then it says again, but that's a disjunctive. It disjoins the previous thought from the coming thought. But again, we are introduced to a problem. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God has a solution. God is a good and benevolent God. He doesn't want to leave his creation incomplete. He does not want to leave man in a state of aloneness. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And by the way, this doesn't mean that men have one less rib than women. I think one of my Sunday school teachers told me that as a kid, and then I kind of looked into it. I'm like, that's not true. <laughs> so anyway, the God, the, we have the rib. It's out, and God takes the rib, and he makes it into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, and I, and I love the, the delay and the anticipation all in this next statement. He's like, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, which is kind of hilarious because he's still on day six. He'd been alone for just several hours, presumably, and yet he he's ac accurately or acutely aware that there's a deficit in his life. He is incomplete. So God makes the woman because she was taken out of man, and therefore it says a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now this is this is speaking to the original readers of this text, the people of Israel, obviously at the time there were no mothers and fathers because it was just Adam and Eve. But as Moses is writing this out, he adds this caveat, this teachable point into the text. So the modern reader who's living in a society where there's now a multiplicity of people realizes that God has a plan for man and woman. They marry, they're in this union. Then when a man grows to adulthood, he, the natural order of things is from to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his own wife, and they become one flesh in the sexual union. And the man and his woman, the man and his wife, were both naked and were not ashamed. So there's some observations in this text that I think are are worth drawing out. And the first would be that, as I mentioned already, Adam was incomplete without Eve. There was there's a deficit. There's a, nat there's a natural awareness that a single man is incomplete without a wife. There's nothing derogatory about that. There's nothing accusatory directed towards single people. We'll talk about that momentarily. But the natural order, it's natural for a man who is without a wife to think to himself like something's not complete about my existence, that's natural. And so it's normal and we would applaud a young man who's pursuing a wife, mm -hmm. just like we would applaud a woman who desires to be married. We also see there that there is unity. So God creates the woman from the side of the man, from the body of the man. It'd be interesting to test them genetically 
just as a sidebar, it would almost seem they would be clones, right? Mm -hmm. One male, one female, but within them, all the diversity that we see in the human gene pool today, radically united as one flesh, they form a new household and we're told by Moses that every new couple that marries forms a new household. They're distinct. There's that idea of sphere sovereignty. They're distinct unto themselves as a new household. And that relationship is necessarily and inevitably a sexual relationship. There's a the nakedness there. Nakedness is, is not only about vulnerability and sinlessness, but there is a sexual nature there, one flesh. So marriage is, is it a friendship? Yes. Is it a partnership? Yes. But it is fundamentally a sexual relationship, and we're not ashamed to say that as Christians. It is a sexual union. A couple that has not consummated their marriage does not have a valid marriage. So when you're married, you leave your father and mother, and you are united as one flesh on your wedding night, and that is a bona fide marriage. So then, Chris, as we trail this theme of marriage through Scripture, it's always commended. God commends marriage. It's spoken of positively. We have the wonderful book of Song of Solomon that speaks of the sexual relationship, the desire, the pursuit of the man for his wife, her learning, uh, her yearnings and desires for him. It's a beautiful quasi-erotic poem about male and f- maleness and femaleness expressed in the context of marriage. Of course, we know about the famous Ephesians 5 passage where marriage becomes an incredible physical dramatic portrayal of Christ's relationship with the church, whereby the woman portrays the church and the man portrays Christ in that union. So we have that love and respect dynamic going on there. And it's a wonderful thing. So it is the natural course. It's the natural trajectory of life. And God has designed us for it. We start as children we eventually become sexually mature. And when we become sexually mature, the natural course is for us to pursue um, marriage. Unfortunately, what happens for many people, and again, I'm not talking about those that haven't found the right person, but for those that delay and delay and delay marriage, sometimes for 10, 15, 20, 25 years after they're sexually mature, after they reach a point where they're designed to be married, there's all sorts of pitfalls and problems that that uh, that stem from that cultural phenomenon. So, yeah, we we um, we we understand that marriage is is not determined by the state; it's it's defined by God. So the state doesn't define what marriage is or isn't. They don't have the authority to do that. They can make up all their own fake categories: same-sex marriage, and on and on and on. Those are all fake marriages. Those are all artificial. The church has no reason or grounds or ability to affirm those kind of unions. And secondly, it it is the foundational unit for human society, and it is sexual and reproductive um, by nature. Mm-hmm. Now, just a little while ago, you mentioned singleness, and I feel at this point we should probably issue some kind of disclaimer because some are called to singleness, right? Yeah. Let me just maybe make this comment that when we when we talk about marriage and the beauty of marriage, oftentimes single people are immediately looking for those disclaimers. And I understand that. 
But I don't want this podcast to die the death of a thousand disclaimers either. So we don't we don't want to create a Christian culture where every time we talk about the values of marriage, we have to tiptoe around so that single people don't feel bad that they're still single. Although I want to speak to this issue because I do minister to single people as well as married people. The culture's done a pretty good job in championing singleness. It does not do a good job in championing marriage. So we probably do need to talk more about marriage at times than we do about singleness. And the other thing I would say is that marriage, again, is the natural dominant trajectory for human adults. But I'll say this to the singles. It's not bad to be single. There's nothing immoral about being single. Let's bear in mind that we're all born single. Mm Mm-hmm. And until we get to adulthood, we're single. So single is sort of the default. And so there's nothing bad about being single. The Apostle Paul champions singleness as a virtue. He applauds those who are called to a chaste lifestyle. And I think that there are then different kinds of single people. Six different kinds of single people come to mind. First of all, and most obvious, there are those that are single because they're still growing up. They're not adults yet. They're children or they're teenagers. They're not adults yet, and they're single, and and we want them to be single. We don't want 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds to be getting married. And then there are those that are marryable. They're of a marryable age, but they they don't want to be married, but they're fornicating. So they want the benefits of marriage, but they don't want the commitment of the covenantal nature of marriage. And the Bible speaks of that as a sin. You know, we, we can think of uh, passages like Hebrews 13, 4, where it talks about, you know, letting marriage be held, let marriage be held in honor by all, and the, that the marriage bed should be undefiled. So fornication is sort of the, the modus operandi of the day. It's what people tend to be doing predominantly. Unfortunately, even in our churches, a lot of Christian young people, supposed Christian young people, are having sex before marriage, and they don't think there's anything wrong with it, or just don't care, or they're sneaking around. And we want to remind our listeners that sex before marriage is forbidden, Mm -hmm. that God has designed sex as a beautiful thing. We champion it within a certain context, otherwise you destroy it. One of the illustrations, by the way, that I used years ago to help people to understand this is that if I were to take a piece of masking tape, for example, and I were to stick two pieces of paper together with it, um, it would work. But let's say I were to take the masking tape off and reuse it on two other pieces of paper and then three and four and five. Over time, the tape loses its stickiness. It doesn't have its ability to adhere, to bond two things together. And I've seen that in promiscuous individuals, where the more they give themselves sexually to other people, their capacity to experience a meaningful bond in marriage is reduced. So we're always reminding people, if you've sinned sexually, yes, there's forgiveness at the foot of the cross, but as much as possible, avoid it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Christian young person, you know better, you, you're well-resourced and you have the capacity to stay sexually pure till, till marriage. So that's a second category. Then there are those that are single but are actively ready and prepared for marriage. And they're they're ready to go. And many of the things we're going to talk about in this episode, they know and they're they're putting into practice and they're you know they're headed in the right direction. And then there are those that are single who want to be married, but they they need to make changes in their lives. 
in other words, they're they're marryable on a certain level, but they're they're not marryable for other reasons. Maybe there's sin in their lives. They're living in sin. They're addicted to pornography, or they have a, a negative view of the opposite sex, or they are inconsistent in their spiritual disciplines, or they're they're um, inappropriate in their actions. They 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 treat people poorly. So they're they're marryable. They're of that age, and they have the potential to be married. But there's things in their lives that are holding holding them back. They're horrible with their money, or they're not pursuing gainful employment, or they have no direction, or they're they're immature. So there's that category. Essentially, the the message to them is smarten up and grow up. So repent of your sin, and you know get your get your life together because. What you don't want to do is enter into a marriage with all sorts of baggage that's going to destroy the other person's life and you know keep Christian counselors in business. Mm-hmm. And then there are those that are marriable. They they want to be married, but maybe there's few prospects. Maybe they live in a small town where there's there's no young people, or they attend a church where there's no young people, or they just don't have prospects and you know, maybe they need to move or maybe they need to start traveling and attending other churches or other conferences. So there's just that reality of, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you go to a, a barren lake, you can cast your fishing rod all day long. And no matter how expensive the lure is, no matter how uh, how much equipment you have, you're you're not going to catch any fish. You could have the best boat. You could have the best set of fishing rods, the best tackle, a fish finder, the fishing hat, the fishing vest, you know, the whole nine yards. But if there's no fish in the lake, there's no fish in the lake. So sometimes people are fishing in empty lakes and they need to go find lakes that have fish in them. The fish are out there. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, sometimes there's just a almost like a, a naivety to the practicalities of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you... If you go hunting in an area there's no wildlife, you're going to come home empty-handed every time. So I'm I'm just I'm trying to be incredibly practical here. Mm-hmm. And and I do know in the past in different discipleship groups I've run, when I've said things this basic, a lot of the students have told me later that that was profound because mm-hmm. they just never thought about that. So mm-hmm. I want them to be thinking about the practicalities of of um prospects. Yeah. It's not just a simple pray and it's going to happen, fall in your lap necessarily. It's he who seeks, finds a wife, finds a good thing, I think is a proverb, right? Yeah. I I, I just think that there's, there's almost like the super spirituality among some Christian young people. I, I want to get married. Okay. What are you doing? Well, I'm praying about it. Okay. Um, do you know of any Christian young people that are single? Not really. Okay. So what, what do you think is going to happen? Like if you're a girl, do you think your girls or girlfriends are just going to suddenly morph into men? Or, well, nowadays that does happen, it seems. (laughs) But um, that's not going to happen, right? God's not going to drop from the sky a wife or potential wife or potential husband into the pew beside you at church. I don't care how much you're praying. So the practical reality is you have to put yourself in places and contexts where you have opportunities to meet single people, Mm -hmm. period. Yep. So make some wise decisions. And then finally, Chris, there's a sixth category of single people, and that is those who don't wish to be married and genuinely want to remain celibate. They feel it's a calling. But here's the thing. That's probably a very small fraction of a percent 
in the average Christian church. Every once in a while, I remember being in China years ago and meeting this very godly Christian woman who was telling us and some other missionaries how she had dedicated her life to singleness and celibacy because she was running an orphanage. Hmm. You know, God bless her. Mm -hmm. But that's rare. Most single people I know want to one day be married or want to be married now. And I think there's some practical things that can be done to increase the potential. Could it be that God has a plan for your life and it involves singleness and you're not aware of that yet? Absolutely. But the general normative course of life is for the majority of people to pursue marriage. Singleness is the exception to the rule. It's not a bad thing, but it's the exception to the rule. Most people are designed and built in such a way that they want to be married. So really, when you ask the question about a disclaimer, it's it's only the folks that are called the celibacy that don't need to listen to the rest of this podcast unless they just want good tips to pass on to their um, you know married friends. But if possible, I just say I'll just say it: get married young. I'm not judging you if you're still single. I'm just encouraging more young people to actively, actively and strategically and prayerfully pursue marriage. And stop sitting in your hands, stop being passive, and think about what you can do to pursue a godly husband or godly uh, wife. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to carry that conversation further and help people, I think we need to talk about some of those things that cause people to delay unnecessarily marriage. So what might be some of those things that come to your mind when we think about that? If I could be so bold, I would say sin is the source of most of it. It might be subtle, but the reason why people tend to delay marriage includes everything from like an unwillingness to an unwillingness to relinquish their supposed freedom. We we hear young guy, I, I don't want the ball and chain, you know, speaking of a a wife. I want my freedom. I like to go out on Friday nights with my buddies and you know, for wings and beer and pool. It's selfishness is what it is. It's it's this notion that you got to live large, party hard, have fun with the boys, and that somehow when you get married, all your freedoms are going to be taken away. Actually, there's freedoms that are offered to you in marriage that aren't offered to you in singleness. But even if you like your freedom, you need to question like question why, because that might be your attempt to avoid God's desire to sanctify you because what God does is he sanctifies us through marriage. Marriage requires a daily giving of oneself to the other, our time, our talents to the other, our love, our affection. And there's a constant reminder that I'm responsible to and for another life. That's a sanctifying thing and it's a lifelong commitment. I also would suggest that there's sometimes just some relational laziness. We live in a society where people like fast food, although I don't know if you've noticed, it's not very fast anymore. <laughs> it's, I like I'm waiting for a long time. It's also fast. not cheap. <laughs> it's not cheap and it's not fast. I went through a Harvey's drive-thru the other night. I got a uh, an original burger and a small root beer and it was 9.50. I didn't even get fries or onion rings, man. It was 9.50. I'm like, what is this? But anyway, Susie was, um, at the church, so I had to, you know, go out because you know how bad I am in the kitchen. But 
relational laziness, I think, is is a problem for many people. They they want fast food, they want to be entertained, and there's just an incredible output of energy that is required to have a meaningful, godly marriage. I don't want to scare people. I think it's it's good. It's really good for me. It's good for me to be accountable. It's good for me to have to think about my wife and you know children and these sorts of things which come out of marriages. But there's a relational laziness. People have um, people prefer the one night stand. People live in a society where they literally would prefer to be at home playing video games or watching a movie by themselves than responsible for someone else, mm-hmm. responsible to actually manage a household and pay bills. So there's relational laziness that often sets in. By the way, if you're a parent and you're listening, if you raise lazy kids and you're like, well, I just like to do everything for them. I like to cook their own meals and pay their bills and keep my name in their bank accounts. What you're actually doing is you're delaying their capacity to be functional in marriage. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's just bad strategy. Sometimes um, love is smothering. Uh, it's perceived as love, but actually smothers and it creates immature people. Fear of rejection, concern about divorce statistics or incompetence, that, that's easily rectified through discipleship, sitting into the sound of the word, reading the word of God. There's umpteen dozen Christian books out there these days on marriage and relationships. We're more resource. We probably have too many resources out there, actually. People are listening to too many voices. But I think fear of rejection and fear of divorce and incompetence, the sin there really is a lack of faith and selfishness, just very selfish, so concerned that you're going to get hurt. Well, grow up. That's life. Mm -hmm. We get hurt, and God sanctifies us through that pain. But there are many people that do everything in their life to try to insulate themselves from pain. They do not realize that it is God's megaphone. I think C.S. Lewis said this to rouse a sleeping world. Mm-hmm. It sanctifies us. And then we have those that are seeking the perfect person. Well, that's also selfishness and arrogance. Like, do you think you deserve the perfect person for starters, even if they existed? Like, are you so perfect that you deserve perfection? And then the second thought there would be, there are no perfect people. You and I got the last ones. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true. Yeah, we're pretty close. But um, you obviously want someone that you, like I, I, I absolutely adore my wife. She's just an incredible woman. And it's difficult for me to put into words how highly I think of her. But she's not the perfect woman. We're, you know, we both struggle with our own sins and own challenges, but we, I think we've sanctified one another. Like mm-hmm. I am a better person with Susie in my life, mm-hmm. a lot better. And maybe she's incrementally better yeah. with you know, <laughs> me, me in her life. But uh, this idea that we have to find the perfect person, that's not how it works. God sanctifies us through, through marriage. And then there's others that have sexual addiction, sexual hangups that, or unconfessed sexual sins in their past. They haven't they haven't dealt with and they feel ashamed. Well, that's a lack of appropriating the gospel and uh, asking for forgiveness or if you've asked for believing that God does actually forgive us of our sins and trespasses. Another thing that comes to mind, Chris, would be unreasonable expectations. So I meet young people. They're like, I want to be married. I'm ready to be married. And their mom or dad's like, no, you're not ready. Well, why? Well, I don't know. We just, 
in our culture, we don't get married till you know we're twenty five. You should have a house first and um, have a car paid off and have money in the bank and finish your degrees and on and on and on. Now I understand there's practical realities to it. If a young man's asking a girl for her hand in marriage and he doesn't have a job, <laughs> that's kind of irresponsible. If you're literally right in the middle of pursuing degrees and you live 500 kilometers apart from one another, it may not be the best time to get married. But a lot of this stuff is smoke and mirrors. Susie and I got married while we were still in school, paying tuition. Um, and sometimes it's cheaper actually to get married, especially if you're both paying rent or dorm fees somewhere else. But I would just say that if God is in it, God will provide. Like you'll be able to work through those those dynamics that are part of most young marriages where there is there is a lack of money. And frankly, that can be a good thing. Mm-hmm. There is a, a lot of living by faith. There are a lot of question marks. You, you might still be renting for a while. You might be struggling to find a home. But delaying your marriage uh, to solve those things probably isn't wise because relationships sort of naturally follow a course or at, at some point you – you know, you discern that we need to be married. That's where our relate. We're like, kind of like a married couple now, so we need to get married. And if you don't, there can be frustration. There can be sexual temptation. There can be all sorts of weird spiritual dynamics that come up. So those would be some things that I maybe I'm just putting words to what people are already sensing. Those are things that stand in the way of marriage and often delay it. One other thought comes to mind, and that's feminism. There's a lot of young women out there that have been poisoned by feminism. This notion that my degrees and my career is is more important than than getting married or bearing children, and that's a lie from the pit of hell. My wife Susie, by the way, did a podcast this past week, her Unveiled podcast, which they've sort of rebooted. And she um, she was talking in there about the blessing of motherhood and the ability to give life, which is unique to females and being a helper and why that's a beautiful thing and so forth. And that's, that's what young women need to hear. Mm-hmm. They've, they've been told for too long, you know, you got to be like men to in every way in order to be valuable. That's a lie. Like, I don't want to be married to a woman that's like a man. There's a mystery in the pursuit of the other. We've joked around about this before in podcasts about how there's a lot of mystery. Mm-hmm. No matter how long you're married, there's always mystery in marriage. Like my wife is still mysterious to me on a certain level. She she says things or does things that I don't understand. Hopefully more often than not, that doesn't lead to frustration, but it leads to an appreciation for the other. That in marriage, there's part of the pursuit, the the, the lifelong beauty of marriage and part of the lifelong joy of marriage, and it's even hilarious at times, is how so different men and women are on a certain level. But we're also a lot alike. We're a lot alike in, in that you know we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We're human beings. We're made in the image of God. But there's also just a lot of differences. We think differently. We act differently. And that's a good thing. And I don't want my wife to be like a guy. Mm. And she doesn't want me to be like a girl. Um I don't have the capacity to be like a girl, by the way, just in case you want to. <laughs> yeah, Some no, guys say you no, need to no. get in touch with your feminine side. I'm like, I don't have one. <laughs> I don't have a feminine side. By the way, let's delete that vocabulary from our, our uh, that language from our vocabulary. 
Oh, you need to get in touch with your feminine side. I'm a male. I don't have a feminine side. Mm-hmm. We don't use that of women. I wouldn't say to my, my wife, you need to get in touch with your masculine side. Mm-hmm. But somehow, strangely, we feel comfortable telling boys and young men, you need to get in touch with your feminine side. The answer to that is I don't have one. Mm-hmm. I'm a man. I'm a male. And I'm comfortable being a man and a male. Likewise, I want my wife to be comfortable being a woman. And the things that I pursue in life, she doesn't need to pursue in life. Feminism has tried to flatten the playing field. It's actually, it's created an incredibly boring world mm-hmm. where men and women are increasingly alike. And now it's, they've taken it like way over the, over the edge with p- transgenderism and people picking their own gender and cross-dressing and all this sort of stuff. Talk about a boring world. That's not diverse. That's boring. When you you equalize everything, mm-hmm. you make everybody look alike, talk alike, act alike. That's a boring world. That's a drab world. That's not a beautiful world to find joy and mystery in. That's a, a world devoid of mystery. God's plans are the most beautiful where we have men and women who are enough alike that they can together reflect the fullness of God's image and they can enjoy a meaningful marriage, but they're, they never really get one another fully. And that's a beautiful thing. There's beauty in that true biblical vision of diversity in, between the, between males and females. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I know you mentioned um, the benefits or just mentioned the idea of get, get married young if you can. And so maybe can you just flesh out for some people, what are the benefits why do you advocate for people to get married young where possible? Well, so so to be very, very clear, I I am a big advocate in getting married as young as you possibly can. When I say possibly can, there are factors to consider. But I would encourage more people to get married at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 23. Like get, get married young. Mm-hmm. And there's many, many reasons for that. And, and, and they include the natural trajectory of your biology. Let's just start there. So you, you're a child, let's say around, you know, depending on who you are, could start as early as 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, by 15 or so, pretty much everybody is, is well into puberty. And you have a sexual appetite. You have a sexually developed body. Marriage is a sexual union. Your sexuality is designed to be expressed in marriage. So strictly looking at how God has designed us, why is it that we have this weird notion that if people come to sexual maturity at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, that we need to wait till we're 28 or 30 years of age to be married? So there's no, I don't want to put any pressure on people, you know, I got to be married by 18 or 19 or 20. I'm a horrible person if I'm not married and I'm still 32. It's not that. That's not the message. But the message is, I think it's high time that the church rewound the clock and remove these weird artificial constructs and these barriers and these hindrances that says to young people, well, I know you're, I know you're biologically ready for marriage and spiritually ready for marriage and, and every other way ready for marriage, but you just got to wait because you're not old enough. Mm-hmm. We're actually just delaying maturity unnecessarily. It's the same with the parent, I'll say it again, that is trying to manage every aspect of their child's life when they're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years of age. I love my kids to death, 
but I want them to grow up and move out of the house. That's mm-hmm. a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It's not like, ooh, ick, I don't like my kids. But I've said to them, when you're 18, you're 18. Living in our house is now a privilege. It's not an expectation. And as far as I'm concerned, it would be better for you and more in keeping with God's plan for your life to move out and start your own family. Now, obviously, there's educational choices and all that to to and jobs to consider. I, I understand. But that's the natural trajectory of life. So it's just it's natural. Upon adulthood, the natural course is to marry and begin a family. Here's what I see among young people that weren't taught that. They get to 25 and all of a sudden their parents are starting to, you know, hint maybe it's time. And they're starting to look around and they're realizing, I'm kind of set in my ways. And the pool of prospects has sort of shrunk. The lake is without fish again, so to speak, to carry that analogy forward. And it becomes more and more difficult for them to find a spouse. And it's not necessarily their fault. It's just that society told them to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And suddenly there's not as many opportunities out there. The other thing I would say is that if we look at culture, it's interesting that in culture, delays in marriage are also always tied to cultural erosion. So if you look at societies that are eroding, it, those are societies where fewer and fewer people are married because, again, marriage is the foundational institution that creates families, and that provides structure and stability across social order. So what the devil wants is he wants fewer people married he, so that he can destabilize society. And society has bought into this lie. So on occasion, my wife and I will watch like a, a, a mini series or whatnot on um, Amazon Prime or we don't have Netflix anymore, but something like that, Disney Plus. And sometimes you'll get into these really good shows, like maybe a, a series on, on police or firefighters or whatever. And you start to realize like none of these people are married. Mm-hmm. Like literally hardly any of them, if any of them are married. They're like 25, 35, 45. They live in these cool Manhattan apartments. You know, they're 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 handsome, they're beautiful, they got these good jobs, they're large and in charge, they're confident, they're well spoken, and they're not married. And what does that subliminally say to young people that are watching these things? The ideal is not married, marriage. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna see uh, the Cleaver family, like the Leave It to Beaver, mm-hmm. who's a show when we were kids. I don't know if you're ever saw it, but yeah. this ideal family where the mom and dad are intact and dad works and mom's a ho- homemaker and the boys come home and you know it's a, it's a nice home and they're well-disciplined. You don't see that. Mm-hmm. To be cool is to be single at 35. Now, what you'll also notice in the shows, they're often sleeping together in a series of broken relationships. They're re- experts in their jobs, but relationally absolute disasters. Yes. That is... That is the image that young people are constantly subliminally presented with. And I see it because yep. I've taught myself to spot the lies, but a lot of young people, they don't see that. Mm-hmm. So they have this notion in their mind that marriage is, is kind of an option. It's not. It's a creational command. It's the natural order of things. Okay, let's talk about fertility. Last week, we did our little show there on um, having more children. Well, if you're going to have more babies, 
here's what we're told by the, um, the experts. So I, I grabbed a quote from the American College for Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Here's what they say, straight from their website. Quote, a woman's peak reproductive years are between the late teens and late 20s. By age 30, fertility, the ability to get pregnant, starts to decline. This decline becomes more rapid once she reaches her mid-30s. By 45, fertility has declined so much that getting pregnant naturally is unlikely for most women, end quote. Hmm. Well, surprise, surprise. That's how God has designed us. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense. So what's another reason to get married young? Well, God's commanded you to have children. If you can, you should have children. And the more you delay, the more difficult that's going to be. God has designed your body to have children and you're more fertile and it's easier in your body when you're in the younger years. First Corinthians 7, 9 also discusses this very practical reality, and that is that it reduces sexual temptation. So the Bible says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're a sexual addict and you have unresolved unconfessed sin in your life that you run out and get married because somehow that's going to fix your sexual addictions. No, it's not. Make sure you're squared up with God and make sure that you've confessed your sin and found the necessary accountability and help before you drag another person into a relationship and expose them to your potential perversions or backsliding. At the same time, God has made us sexual beings. We don't apologize for that. We shouldn't be shy about that. It shouldn't make us blush. We are sexual beings. Mm -hmm. God has given us sexual organs, and therefore, marriage is the place, the relationship within which we express ourselves sexually. So why do we have so many frustrated young people who are involved in sexual sin? Well, because some of them have kept delaying marriage unnecessarily, which is the good and beautiful place where God has provided the opportunities for, um, to, uh, for us to express ourselves sexually. And I would also add to this list that when, when you, just a practical thought is when you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, you're getting older, you're getting older, you're getting older. What happens is we get older. We get more set in our ways. We get more particular about what we eat our expectations, our patterns, our behaviors. And it does. I know this being a pastor for coming up on 30 years, that when people marry on the younger side, they're more flexible. They're more able to grow together. They're more able to establish those patterns of um, you know, household chores and finances and personal preferences and recreational time and church involvement, they're more flexible. But if you delay, 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 you sort of have your patterns and behaviors. And I can tell you a lot of people that unnecessarily delay and that get married later in life find it very, 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 very difficult to adjust to one another. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it just becomes a fact of it's more difficult. So those those are some reasons that come to my mind as to why I, I advocate for young marriage. Mm -hmm. If possible, again, yep. not judging those that for whom that hasn't happened, not judging you, but for those of you that have opportunity, if you have opportunity and God has put the person in your life, 
why are you waiting? Like, mm-hmm. what what is the purpose of delaying and delaying and delaying marriage? That's what the world does, and it's not healthy or helpful for the majority of people. Mm-hmm. And just listening to that, thinking through the lens of a parent now, um, you know, I got married, my wife and I, at 21 and 20. I look around now and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I could let my kids get married at 21 and 20. The world's a different place, right? But this kind of reminder is good about that. Well, tell the truth, Chris. I mean, you were sitting in a Bible college class and I told, I I gave this exact speech to you. You totally did. You you guys get married. Next thing you know, you ran out the middle of the semester and got married. Got married. It's true. So, um, okay. So I know in your discipleship groups over time, people have really benefited from just super practical advice that you give. Um, the advice that older people give to younger people. So if if you were asked, how do I find a spouse? What would you say? Well, make sure you're squared up with God. That should go without saying. So you, you're availing yourself with the spiritual disciplines. You're in regular fellowship with God's people. You're regularly confessing your sins. So your relationship with Christ, good character, good reputation is really, really important. But moving out from there, one of the best things young people can do that want to position themselves for a healthy marriage is learn to treat your siblings well if you have them. Learn to develop a, a, a network of robust platonic relationships. So here's the thing. If, if I'm a guy and I have sisters and I have spiritual sisters in the church and I'm maybe a, a young adult group or a youth group and I'm regularly interacting with other guys and girls – it actually increases my ability to, to understand how women think, to value them for who they are without thinking of them even as um, a future, a potential future spouse. It just it just increases my skill sets, if I could put it that way, for knowing how to relate to members of the opposite sex because there can be a lot of awkwardness there. If you were raised in a home where you, you're a guy and you only had brothers or you're a girl and you only have sisters – or your parents haven't talked to you a lot about relationships, it can be kind of a little challenging. Like how, do I, how do I treat a woman? How do I relate to a woman? So developing a robust network of platonic relationships, I think is, is wise. It helps you to build those relational skills with the opposite sex. And by the way, it also shows that you're not just you know, after a guy or after a girl, that you, mm-hmm. you have the capacity to have a relationship without romantic intentions attached. Now, uh, there also is a little benefit to this, and that is a lot of those people will become, pardon my language, your wingman. So I, I know in relationships that when relationships develop, it's often true that the guy or girl will consult their peer group and say, well, what do you think about this guy? Or what do you think about this girl? We kind of consult each other on a certain level. And if we get the thumbs down from all of our peers, we might second guess, like, is this is this really the person for me to pursue? But if other people say, no, I, I know him or I know her, I, I've been friends with them for a long time, like they're, they're really solid, they love the Lord, that is a benefit to you as well. So I would say very practically, make sure that you're developing relationships with other men and women without any romantic intentions uh, necessarily attached. But out of that group of people you're building relationships with will come those potential spouses. Mm-hmm. So there may be someone that you just set your eye on, your heart on. There's just some sort of a a, a desire there that's, that's different in the group. I would also say be presentable and self-aware. That's really, really important. Girls tend to excel at this. Guys are all over the map in this regard. Mm-hmm. 
but being physically presentable is 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 pretty important. So if you're listening and you're like, man, I can't, I just can't figure out why no girl ever wants to go on a date with me. Well, just ask yourself, like, do you, do you have a nice haircut? Do you brush your teeth? Have you dealt with your acne? Do you dress presentably? Very practical stuff. I would, you know, tell my kids this when they were younger. Like, if you're going to look like a slob, you're going to reduce your prospects. And there may be some that bristle at that. Well, you know, the Lord concerns himself with the heart, not with outward appearances. Well, reality check, okay, reality check, A, you're not God, and B, marriage is a sexual relationship. There necess- by necessity has to be a physical attraction to the other person. You need to restrain the sexual expressions until you are married. But there's nothing wrong with, and there should be a physical attraction to the other person. And what girl is really going to want to date some dude who looks like a girl or who dresses like a slob or who has body odor or whose face is covered with acne? See, this is where we want to be really, really practical. Mm -hmm. So be aware of your self-image. Like maybe you need to spend a little more money on some clothing. Maybe you need to get a haircut. Maybe you need to consult others. It's actually not a bad idea if you're super humble to go to a friend or two and say, hey, bro, like, do you mind assessing me? Like, is there anything about my appearance that's sort, wow. sort of off-putting? Yeah. And if if you were to do that, you'd probably get some feedback. Your buddies might say, no, that's not a problem at all, man. Like, you're, you know, you got it going on. But others might say, you know what? Yeah, you know, now that you're asking, you know, there's some changes that need to be made. I, I can think of people over the years that are, we're looking for, a husband or wife, and I'm thinking to myself, I hope you ask me, I hope you ask me why it's not working, because mm-hmm. I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with your physical hygiene, or it has to do with your appearance. Like you can't, we're not talking about going out and getting cosmetic surgery. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about going out and dressing like a prostitute. We're not talking about drawing attention to yourself, but having a reasonable awareness mm-hmm of your physical appearance is is certainly uh, helpful. We're not, at the same time, we're not to be so concerned about our physical appearance that it's a turnoff. And I can tell, I'll just say this to, to young women that might be listening. I've talked to many young men who would tell me straight up, like, obviously I'd, I'd love to have a wife that's a beautiful woman, but if she's a cake face, you know, she has three inches of makeup on and her dress style is exaggerated or seductive. I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. So there's some girls that think, you know, they need to dress like sex objects to attract men. All they end up doing is attracting dirty men Mm -hmm. because the principled men are going to look at that and say, well, you might be physically appealing, but as a principled man, there's a character deficit there. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be that balance between concerning yourself with your physical appearance, but not to the point where it's an idol or you've sexualized yourself. Uh, that will actually t- turn people off and drive people away. So that's important. Okay, here's another practical tip. Uh, my wife and I, I've teased her about this because when I we met in Bible college and she made it so difficult for me to s- spend time with her by herself. So in those, when I started taking an interest in her, I'd see her in chapel or I'd see her in the hallways. I'm like, I wanna go chat with her, right? Because I wanna start to build that relationship and get a sense for where she's at. 
And she'd always be in her um, comfort cluster. You know, there's two or three girls she was always with. And so I felt I was almost vetting all three of them at the same time. <laughs> and I wasn't interested in the others. So sometimes guys and girls make the critical error by being in those comfort cliques. The single girl who's literally never apart from her two or three best friends. Mm -hmm. So that's intimidating for a guy to kind of break into that whole clique and to actually have any sort of meaningful dialogue or to express any interest when everyone's always eavesdropping in the relationship. So there's nothing wrong with having, if you're a girl, you know, your girlfriends and hanging out with them. But when you're in church or at a camp or a conference and you want to mingle and get to know people of the opposite sex, split up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And the same with guys. If, if you're at church and you're always just with your guy buddies goofing around, telling jokes, it's going to be difficult for a girl to ever want to have a meaningful conversation with you. So making sure that you're not um, in those comfort cliques and surrounded by you know guards and watchmen, so to speak, is, mm -hmm. is helpful. Signaling interest is important. I put out a little tweet uh, there a while ago or a Facebook post, and I just said to the guys, like, hey, hey, hey guys, you need to actually initiate you yeah. need to initiate a conversation. That's your job. You're the initiator. Don't expect the girls to initiate. You should be initiating. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're going to get some girls that are like, yeah, not interested. And that can be painful and hurtful, but don't let that throw you off. So guys need to initiate, but girls, you also need to signal some concern or some interest. A, a lot of young guys, they, they lack confidence and they may be thinking, okay, I might, I might want to ask this girl, but I'm not getting any signals at all as to whether or not she is even interested. So if you're a girl um, or if you're a guy, you can you know walk up, initiate a conversation, but girls, you can kind of signal back as well. Maybe a positive comment on a social media post or looking pleased rather than scared to death when he comes up and talks to you is, yeah. is helpful and it affirms that he's moving in the right direction. So making sure that you're, you're thinking through those relational dynamics and I'll just use the word signaling to one another without making it weird or cheesy that there is there is some interest there. Mm -hmm. Dealing with your fears is important. A lot of people have a, have a fear of rejection, rejection and I don't feel sorry for that. I just identify it for what it is. That's pride and you need to confess it. Mm. Fear of rejection is, is essentially pride. It's you're just protecting yourself from from the potential of hurt. If you're going to enter into marriage, you are going to get hurt. Hopefully, rarely, and hopefully the blessings of marriage far outweigh the hurt. But whenever you put yourself in a covenantal relationship, an intimate relationship, you're going to get hurt. So instead of living in fear of the other and worried, overthinking, are they going to say no? Are they going to think of me? Is it going to look weird? Are other people going to just, if you're interested, just have a conversation. Mm-hmm and probe to see if there's interest. It's as simple as that. Don't overthink it, move forward. Real conversations are important. A lot of young people nowadays resort to text messaging, which is, it's it's not bad, exclusive, but it is bad if that's the exclusive form of communication. We, I, I've actually heard of people breaking up through text messages. Like how impersonal Ouch. is that? Or asking someone to marry them through text messages. No. Like, come on. Me, let's recover meaningful conversations. Now, I'm not opposed to you know online dating sites. They weren't around when I was a single guy. 
And uh, I do know of a lot of godly Christians that have met very godly spouses online. But I would hope, I would hope that people realize that if that's your first go-to, there's probably a problem there that if you're in a church with other single men and women and you never talk to them, but you're super comfortable online viewing profiles and because you already know the person's interested, that that could be the coward's way out. That could be a, an, an expression of fear. If If you've legitimately looked high and low and in your sphere of influence or relationships, there are no prospects, have at it. You know, get onto a good Christian site and develop relationships with people and see where it goes. But I am opposed to people using online dating sites or resorting to text relationships when they have never approached a person in real life mm -hmm. on one single occasion. So we need to, in relationship, there's so much communication that takes place. Developing that in the dating process, including the initial courting process, is, is really important. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, hopefully it goes without saying, because I already mentioned, make sure you're squared up with God. Keep your dates holy, meaningful, and God-centered. So you don't, you're not fornicating, you're not uh, engaged in sexually inappropriate conduct. You shouldn't be spending time alone in parks at night. You should be praying together. You should be discussing marriage, not, maybe not on date number one, but soon after, let them know, I'm dating strategically here. I'm not dating just because I don't have anything else to do on a Friday night. Mm -hmm. I'm dating because I'm looking for a spouse. And so early in the dating relationship, you need to say, I, I'll, I'll be straight with you. I really like you, and I want to date to see if it's God's plan and intention for us to pursue marriage. I just want to be straight out, lay the cards on the table. By the way, that should come from the guy mm. because he's the spiritual initiator, and he is testing the waters to see what her response is to his spiritual leadership. He's not her spiritual head until they're married. But he starts to role play that on a certain level to she, see how she responds and also signal to her that he has that capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. Um, if we, for the last few minutes here, just maybe address some of the parents that are thinking, how can I prepare my children for marriage? Okay, yeah. Well, I think that's the reason why that's important is because some of what I'm talking about will be directed towards people that are already adults. And now they're trying to figure out how to get married and what the parameters are and whatnot. But if we're going to actually shape generations to come, parents have to be part of this process from the time the kids are young to help to shape their understanding of marriage, their expectations for marriage, to help to equip them to pursue marriage meaningfully. And I would say that there's a bit of a balancing game, some discernment that's required there. So you don't want to be overbearing and demanding, and, you know, why aren't you married yet? And creating weird dynamics where you're forcing them to talk to people at church they don't like, or moms talking to other moms to try to set their kids up. That's all weird and awkward and is not helpful. Hmm. At the same time, there are some pointers you can give, I could give to you as a parent, that will help help you to help your kids to be positioned for early marriage in a meaningful and God-honoring way. And it starts with 
the whole concept of what, what are we doing as parents? And I've said this before, we're raising adults, not kids. So the end goal is not to get kids to a higher level of kiddishness. The goal is to get kids to adulthood. Mm-hmm. And I want, to, I want my kids to start acting like adults before they're adults. So my parenting style is to emphasize responsibility and thoughtfulness and godliness and love for Christ and to help them to think Christianly about all of life, to manage finances, to make good choices, to be hard workers, to be faithful in church participation, these sorts of things. So raising adults rather than raising kids, your kids will mature faster. And that's a good thing. Of course, you'll mourn the fact that they're moving out because you love your kids, but that's life, okay? God didn't give you your kids as your pets. Mm -hmm. As a parent, you should want your kids to actually grow up and leave and cleave. That's your job, that's your goal, to get them to that point. So in your marriage, if you have the benefit of being a married couple, and most do, who have kids, obviously there's some single parents, I'm sure, that will listen to this as well. But for married couples, don't make your mystery a uh, or your your marriage a mystery. Talk about your marriage. Talk about how you and your spouse uh, sort through issues. Especially as your kids get into their teen years, they need to know how mom and dad operate. So you want to talk about matters of finances. You want to talk about matters of dispute resolution. You want to talk about matters of headship. You want to actually have those conversations and say, yeah, you know, your mom and I have sorted through this and we've had some highs and lows and some challenges along the way. Here's how we dealt with it. So don't make your your marriage a mystery. I've met some Christian young people in marriage counseling classes and in discipleship groups and they, they bring up their parents. They're like, I don't even know what my parents' marriage is all about. Like they never talk about it. It's always shrouded in mystery and secrecy. So being transparent with your kids about your marriage will help to jumpstart them as to what the expectations are and dynamics in their uh, future marriages. And then just whenever you're around young people, speak positively of young marriage, encourage it where possible. So we, we would say to our kids and we're young, hey guys, mom and I would be totally fine if you got married at 18, 19, 20, 21. No pressure. There's no pressure. But just so you hear it from the horse's mouth, we're fine with that. We think that's a good thing. And here's the benefits to it. And if the Lord presents someone to you to marry, then go for it. By the way, this is why we never allowed our kids to date till they were 17, because our thinking was if they if they found a godly uh, young man or woman, then they could date for maybe a year before they got married, maybe two years. But there's no reason for uh, 13 or 14 or 15 year olds to be dating at all, period, because chances are they're not gonna get married till they're 18. And um, or even beyond that, and that's just too too long of a, a runway. There's just yep, all sorts right. of potential problems that could happen. So holding them back until they're a little bit older, but then green lighting them is important. Also exposing your kids to quality people. So being part of quality churches, you know, deliberately vacationing with godly uh, families, sending your kids to godly schools. Uh, to Bible camps, having godly families over to your home as part of your small group. It doesn't mean that you you know you pick all the people that you you want your kids to to marry, but just having a general culture in your church where you have a lot of Christian relationships 
is going to increase the likelihood that they meet someone that becomes a marriage prospect. Teach on marriage and relationships in your church. Make sure your church is teaching on these things. Teach teach on these issues with your um, your kids. I'm not talking about formal studies, but just your ongoing conversation. And then, of course, you, you do want them to. So, what you don't want is you don't want to be telling young people, "Hey, get married young," and they're like, "Okay." And then they go and ask someone to marry them and they don't have a job and they don't have a career and they have no direction in life and on and on and on. There, there are some practical realities, especially for men. You shouldn't be marrying until you're able to provide for your wife because your wife theoretically could get pregnant day one. Mm-hmm. And now you have a family to, to, um, to provide for. So there has to be some basic income there. It doesn't mean that you have to have a 50 acre ranch or they need to have you know, three degrees, but people can still pursue education while they're married. Uh, people can save it for down payments when they're married, especially if they're both working. But the reality is there also is some practical application. So when you're talking to your young people, you need to say, okay, well, when you're making choices about schooling, when you're making choices about jobs or expenditures or about cars, there's consequences to those choices and we live in a real world. So if you're, if you're going to say, I'm signing up for four years of school in Zimbabwe, well then, you know, you're going to limit your, your potential to get married. Mm-hmm. But if that's kind of how you've planned things out, maybe you've saved in advance and if the Lord brought a spouse in your way, you could still pay for your schooling and be married. Just having those, there's, there's so many variables. I don't want to get off into the weeds. But the point I want to make is help them to think through the practical realities. If they want to get married young, what are the best decisions that they can make in terms of school and finances and debt to position themselves uh, for that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's some really good advice. Well, thank you, Aaron. Appreciate that. And thank you again to our listeners. This is the kind of podcast that you want to share with your single friends, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> right on. Share away. <laughs> I was going to say, just, just if you're the overbearing, smothering parent, maybe let your children find this podcast rather than share it to them. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but, <a good> idea. <laughs> anyways, hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, make sure to download the Fight, Laugh, Feast app where you can hear this uh, show as well as many other great podcasts. And then also, if you uh, have some time, head over to pursuitofglory.org. This is also where the podcast is hosted from, and that's Pastor Aaron's personal blog. Hope you will tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.